0: Before this episode of the Final Word Podcast, another quick update from our friends at BrickLane Brewing. We are grateful for BrickLane's support through the weekly episode, Storytime. Did you hear Daniel Norcross's wild 904 triumph? Are you kidding me? Start with Storytime 59 and then follow it up with Storytime 60. Totally worth it. And also the daily episodes. Adam and Jeff have been super busy. You can find all of those, the daily episodes, wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can watch them on the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel. There are currently 23,000 subscribers. We'd love to get that to 25,000. So if you are not a subscriber to the Final Word Cricket Podcast YouTube channel, please stop by, check it out, and if you like it, subscribe. And then you'll never miss a video. In Cricket, there are great partnerships. Podcasting is no different. It's the partnership between the show, Adam and Jeff, the sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing, and you, the listener. I'd use your name, but I don't know who you are. But thank you. In addition to subscribing to the YouTube channel, please check out Brick Lane Brewing on Instagram and Facebook. Say hello and tell them the final word sent you. You can order all your Brick Lane favorites at bricklanebrewing.com. It's a super easy way to get your hands on all of the various brews. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the final word. And as always, thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, and the final word. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's
1: some stories I can tell you This is the Final Wear Cricket Podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon. You'd think the fact that we're in the same country would mean we're in the same room. That's not to be because Jeff is hunkered down in in quarantine in Queensland. He will be uh, there for the first Test Match. I will not because uh, arrangements haven't quite allowed for that. So, But we are only... Blimey, eight days away from the first Ashes Test match as we sit down to record this edition of the podcast, which will include a conversation about the chaotic World Cup qualifier for the women that got abandoned this week with Andrew Nixon. We'll be talking about Tim Payne uh, leaving the team altogether. Patrick Cummins. Patrick, that's right. Cummins becoming the 47th captain of the Australian Test Team. Selection debates, nerd pledge, the women's big bash league final, a brilliant test match to start the series between India and New Zealand, and a couple of other test matches going on around the world today as well.
2: Hello, Jeff. Hello, Adam. Uh, a week without appreciable scandal. You know, no one, no one got sacked. No one had to quit. I don't really know what to do with myself. It, it's like a relatively low-key week. Aside from a new COVID strain emerging, abandoning several series and tournaments, including World <laughs> Cup qualifiers, and a new Australian captain being appointed.
1: Yeah, and the very fact that Tim Payne's no longer going to be available for selection. So when we recorded our last weekly show, which was quite deep into the week, it was Thursday, I think, Tim Payne was still available for selection, Also, we thought, and we, we talked about the whys and wherefores of that, but on Friday morning, he put out a statement saying he wouldn't be playing for Tasmania in their group game there, and in turn, he'd be taking a, a break from cricket mm. altogether. Uh, we'll talk about that a, a little bit more in detail later. We're going to skip over it for the time being. The first thing I want to talk about, though, Jack, I'll tell is you what, as though, of mate, this
2: morning, he, he would have played if they'd had a mercantile mutual uh, offer where if you hit the sign you got 50 grand. He would have played if that had been on offer. I mean bring that back. (laughs) Where's the hit the sign?
1: (laughs) 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 Could could be quite helpful money at the moment after uh, for all the match payments he won't be picking up this summer. I shouldn't make light of it, really. It's It's a really horrible situation. But as I say, we'll talk about that a bit more in a little bit. What I want to say off the top is that our live shows on the 13th and the 14th of December now have guests attached to them in Melbourne. Mission to Seafarers... 13th of December, with none other than our friend and yours, Chris Rogers, former Australian opening batsman, uh, West Australia, Victoria. Let's try and go through all the counties, shall we? Leicestershire, Northance, Derbyshire, Middlesex, Somerset. I think I've got all five there. He's with us. That mission to Seafarers to go Mm -hmm. through his quite extraordinary uh, life in professional cricket. Now, of course, the coach of Victoria. And then the next night in Adelaide at the Uni Bar, we have former three-time Ashes winning bowler, I'm pretty sure, Stephen Finn, who uh, was part of the 10-11 squad that won at Adelaide, but also part of the team that was victorious a couple of times in England in 2013 and 2015. Fifteen, Finney's out here commentating uh, with BBC Test Match Special and he has kindly made himself available to talk with us in Adelaide about his life in the game, which continues as a player. He's uh, just moved over to Sussex, having finished a a 16-year career at Middlesex. But uh, as he's kind of transitioning between playing and broadcasting at the moment, he finds himself in Australia. He's got plenty of stories to tell and he's a lovely fella, so he'll be a great guest as well.
2: Yes, couldn't be happier to be being joined by Chris Rogers and Stephen Finn. A couple of extremely interesting stories to tell from uh, both sides of the ashes fence, I suppose. And um, just hang on a sec, Adam, I've just got to do my Queensland health quarantine check-in. By opening the following link. So this is a thing where they send you a text message every day and you have to immediately reply to it and it tracks the geolocation of your phone to make sure that you are where you're supposed to be. Do you need practical or emotional support? Well, I mean, yes, in general, but not that Queensland Health can give me. Am I experiencing COVID symptoms? (laughs) No. Has anyone entered my nominated quarantine address who does not normally reside there? I wish. And have I left? No, I haven't. So... All right, that's done. Check in. Yeah, I've missed about, I don't know, in eight days, I've missed about six of these because they send them by about 10am when I'm still asleep. So I get a phone call every day from some worried Queensland health worker who's like, (laughs) you didn't reply to your message. And I'm like, you sent it at 8.45, champion. Of course, I didn't reply to the message.
1: (laughs) How does that, I mean, in practical terms, what happens then? Because I would have thought that by not responding, it's a little bit like Mo Farrow. If you're not there when they knock on the door to do a drugs test, yeah. it's assumed you're a drugs cheat. I mean, is it the same with you and they assume that's, you're that's why the cops taking drop the piss around. until you can prove otherwise?
2: Yeah, that's why ah, I had the, the right. visit. That's from on the last week's show. Because, yeah, because I'd missed two days in a row or something and they thought that I'd done a runner. <laughs> um, and I was like, not only have I not left this house, I haven't put on pants in like four days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there has been no danger of me leaving this house. Anyway, Chris Rogers and Stephen Finn
1: Yes, Chris Rogers, Stephen Finn Let's talk about uh, a couple of things First of all, the fact that we've got two wonderful venues And and second of all, uh, that if you are a patron of ours, we are offering a a discount Yes,
2: so it's a good time to sign up If you want to sign up, uh, you can do that now You can get a a cheeky little uh, third off, I think Third of the the price, worth doing that um, for that alone and I think we're going to have a lot of fun. We're writing the show at the moment. We're working out what segments are going to be in it. If you want to make suggestions, you can let us know on the, the socials or the emails or the DMs or whatever what you'd like to see in a final word show, what would make a final word live because that's what we're working out at the moment, refining the process and researching the stories of our guests.
1: And we've, I think we're up to about... Shows seven and eight now, so we've got it down to a, a reasonable, a reasonable craft. So I, I'm confident that if you haven't been before, uh, that you will have a good time. So uh, the tickets are all in the show notes. There, there are different links for the two shows because we're selling them through di- two different providers. Don't ask us why. That's just the way mm-hmm. that it all worked out. Brick Lane will be there in force on both occasions. We'll have plenty of their beer. Uh, well, I in think supply. there'll be
2: giveaways. I, I think. Oh, I, right. I think there'll be. I think there'll be some sort of. You know, I'm still working out the details of this, but I think there may be some sort of. You know. Door prizy like maybe maybe it involves a quiz I don't know there'll be a chance to walk away with free stuff at the end of the night put it that way
1: okay so all there at uh, finalwickets.com but in the show notes too come along to our live shows chris rogers on the 13th and Stephen Finn on the 14th. Jeff, we mentioned in the intro that uh, unfortunately coronavirus is part of the conversation again this week, big time, due to the new Omicron variant that became, uh, well, that started circulating, I suppose, at least as far as testing is concerned, late last week and over the weekend. Mm -hmm. It is having an effect already on on the program of different teams around the world but the biggest effect was on the world cup qualifier that the women were involved in ahead of the 50 over world cup next april and jeff you've caught up with andrew nixon who's a writer and a leading voice on the game in associate cricket to so explain why this has been a complete
2: and utter debacle this is the final word, and uh, very happy to have joining the show today one of the leading voices on associate cricket in the world, Andrew Nixon. Welcome to the program. First of all, oh, thank you, Jack. It's a pleasure to be here. The women's World Cup qualifier. This is the reason that we've got you on. Can you, first of all, outline for us what was going on in this tournament, who was playing, and what was up for grabs?
3: Yeah. So this was. This is. So, oh, it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's to qualify for the World Cup. Um It wasn't just to qualify for the World Cup. There was also a qualify for the Women's ODI Championship, which has been newly expanded to 10 teams for the next cycle. It was originally just eight teams. So there were five full members um, involved in this, which were Zimbabwe, who actually qualified for your regional qualifications, Ireland and Bangladesh, who qualified because they had ODI status, and then Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and then the other regional qualifiers were Thailand from Asia, uh, the Netherlands from Europe, the USA from the Americas, and originally Papua New Guinea from East Asia Pacific, but Papua New Guinea had to pull out of the tournament because a lot of their players tested positive for COVID before they even left Papua New Guinea. So it ended up just a nine-team tournament. One group of five, one group of four. Top three from each group was going to go through to a Super 6 stage, and from that, three teams would qualify for the World Cup, five teams qualified for the RDI Championship. Then what happened on Saturday, one of the games was called off. Later it turned out that I think six Sri Lankan players had tested positive for COVID. There's been this new Omicron variant of COVID. Loads of countries cancelling flights from your know, southern Africa. Um, this this isn't just the only event that's been happening. Obviously, Netherlands are playing in South Africa at the moment. There's a body I try to use in Namibia. Also at the moment, both of those have been called off as well because... You know, players had to get flights out of countries uh, before the borders closed. And it is an unfortunate position to be in. It's an awkward position. I think the original plan as of Saturday was to move the whole tournament wholesale to the UAE. But once the UAE said, well, actually, no, we're going to ban flights from Zimbabwe as well, that that was taken off the table. So the ICC had to Mm. revert to something to decide the qualifying teams. At the time, this... This was announced. Thailand were in the process of thrashing the USA. They had already beaten Bangladesh and Zimbabwe. They had secured that place in the Super Six stage. However, because Thailand don't have ODI status, they don't have a ranking, and the ICC reverted to rankings to decide the tournament, to decide who progressed in the tournament. Of the nine teams in the tournament, only five were actually on the ODI ranking table right so obviously and as of september at the end of september this year which was the cutoff point Mm. obviously essentially the whole tournament that had been played up until that point was completely meaningless because none of the games counted and the icc Mm. did say and this is a fair point that some of the teams had only played one game you can't really decide qualification for a tournament based on just one game. You can't really do win percentage when a team's only played one game. So, you know, things like that. Which, which you know, is a fair point. But when you look at some of the rankings, ranking? so Sri Lanka in the ranking period, which dates back to May 2018, think had won one game in 12. Bangladesh, and that, that was enough to qualify them for the ODI Championship. Bangladesh had won two games in eight.
2: Because they actually had a ranking, presumably, whereas whereas other teams didn't. So it's coming down to this weird gatekeeping thing in cricket that says that certain teams get given status. But that's a lot of the time that's based on whether their men's team has that status, isn't
3: it? It's slightly different for women's cricket. Just to carry on with that ranking thing, though, the only games that Ireland actually counted towards their ranking were the three games they played against New Zealand in June 2018, all of which they lost by over 300 runs.
2: Yeah, I remember that series. Yeah. <laughs> They've qualified by conceding 500 runs to New Zealand in r- repeatedly.
3: Yeah, this isn't to get at Ireland or anything. You know, Ireland have been hard done by as well, just as Thailand have. And Zimbabwe have to some extent as well. Zimbabwe are probably on track for the Super 6 as well. You know, they were the host nation. They're in a very unfortunate position. As you say, the, is the situation has been slightly different in women's cricket. So the ICC took over control of women's cricket in, I think, 2005 or 2006. It was previously run by the International Women's Cricket Council. The International Women's Cricket Council had a much more sort of open view of status. And they're la- the, la- the only women's qualifier they actually won previously, the World Cup, had been run by invitation. They won one qualifier. And that was an all-ODI event. So Japan have played women's ODIs under the... IWCC, Scotland played ODIs under the IWCC. The ICC came in and said, oh no, we don't like this. We like to do things in tens. We're going to have 10 teams Mm -hmm. with ODI and test status, which wasn't actually the full members because at that time, Zimbabwe didn't have a women's team and Bangladesh didn't have a women's team. It was actually Ireland and the Netherlands. Ireland had played a women's test in 2000 and the Netherlands played one, I think in 2007 against South Africa. I think it's still the last... Up until very recently, was the last test not to involve yeah. either England or Australia, uh, which is a nice little pub quiz question if anybody wants it.
2: Yeah, well, in India, India played one against South Africa in 2014, and Sorry, day before yes, that, I think the, it was yeah was it was yeah the Netherlands in 04 or whatever it was. Yeah. Um,
3: so, so then that's it. So eventually, i they going to say, "Well, we we'll make it the top ten teams after World Cup mm-hmm. qualification." Um, The next World Cup qualifier in 2000, I'm just trying to get my dates right, I think it was 2013, the Netherlands lost ODI status, Bangladesh gained it. And it had been like that ever since, so Zimbabwe didn't have ODI status until early this year when at the IC annual conference, they decided that actually all full members now can play women's ODIs and women's test matches if they ever want to play test
0: matches. So
2: Zimbabwe... But that creates this weird situation where the notional Afghanistan women's team that doesn't exist has ODI status, but the Thailand team doesn't, even though they're playing 50 over matches to try to qualify for a World Cup, they're still not being called one-day internationals because of the team that's playing.
3: Yeah, and when you look at their recent results, obviously, as I said, they beat Bangladesh and beat Zimbabwe, they've beaten... They've beaten Zimbabwe much, not just in this tournament recently. You, you look, at, you compare the records of, let's just say, Ireland, Zimbabwe, and Thailand. There really isn't much to choose from in recent results. They have very similar records when they play a similar teams. You know, Zimbabwe's Ireland record against full members in recent years has not been great. Um, not just against New Zealand, but pre, pre, you know, prior to that, so they They made one game in about eight years against full members. Thailand have beaten two in a week (laughs) and I'd beaten Zimbabwe a couple of times uh, back in August I think it was so Thailand are the the team that's been most harshly treated they were as I said they'd won three games out of four Uh, even the game they lost against Pakistan they bowled Pakistan out for 140 odd and they just lost it through the batting so they are there or thereabouts they are one of the top 12 teams in women's cricket if we were talking, about, if the Thailand men's team was putting these sort of performances, they would have ODI status. We'd be talking about them as a potential full member. If the Thailand mm-hmm. men's team were playing like this, and it seems very odd that the status of your women's team can depend on how good your men's team is, whereas Thailand, whose women's team is far, far advanced compared to the men's team, the men's team doesn't even make it out of Asian sub-regional qualifying. They're not making it to a region regional final. They're certainly not making it to global qualifiers. So it doesn't add up that you can have such a good women's team, but because your men's team is crap, you lose out.
2: You're, you're not given a ranking, and mm. therefore, you, and you're not given the chance to actually play ODIs, which means you can't improve the ranking. And yeah. then, so, you, you can understand the position of having a qualifier that's called off, and you have to pick who. Uh, advances from that qualifier one way or another but the other part of this being you know what what you also mentioned the the 2022 to 2025 cycle of matches. Essentially how that's supposed to work, isn't it right, is that everybody in that league plays all of the other teams in that league. Therefore, it's going to help teams vastly improve to be up against better opposition more often. And that's a a longer term position. So that's something, these are matches that will be played in 2025, up to 2025, Mm -hmm. that are being decided by a tournament that can't be played in 2021, as though Qualifying for that couldn't be played in a couple of months or yeah. early next year or whenever it may be. Yeah, you could so have, have a preliminary
3: with- round ahead of the World Cup in New Zealand, which is obviously what they do with the World, the T Twenty World Cup. And you know, Ireland are now in a great position. They've got twenty seven ODIs against you know against some of the best teams in the world over a three year period. They've I don't think they've ever played twenty seven games in three years. Never mind They've not. I don't mm-hmm. think they've even played you know, more than maybe ten in one year except when there's been a qualifier on. So Ireland have a very good fixture list now, but Thailand could have had that fixture list as well. And I think it's a bit short-sighted to say, okay, we're going to keep to 10 teams. You know, Why not go? Well, this is exceptional circumstances. Let's go. Let's put Zimbabwe, put Thailand in, expand it to 12 teams. You don't have to just do one group of 12. You can then you know, maybe do something similar to the county championship this year, have two conferences of six teams. And then once everybody's playing each other, you split it off into the top six and bottom six, and have you know a league that yep. works like that. Which is actually, I think, you know, a group of ten is forty-five series. That I think is forty-eight off the top something like that. So it's not much extra cricket for them to organise. Just involves more teams. It also very nicely avoids the India-Pakistan situation, which oh, it's always a problem with this women's ODI championship because they won't play each other outside of the World Cup. So there were there are other solutions that could have been done rather than go back on rankings which are notoriously unreliable and which have very low sample sizes to deal from. You're, you can't really say that Ireland are definitely a top 10 team based on three ODIs they lost by 300 runs you know, three years ago. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, I don't... You know, I think that, you know there's some people on Twitter saying that people are getting an Ireland for this, and it's not our field for Ireland as well. I think Ireland do deserve to get that fixture list. They have, they should have. You know, this ODI championship should have been ten teams for a long time. There were ten ODI teams. Why are you only having eight in the ODI championship? You know, and
2: mm.
3: it's just so disappointing. It's a disappointing climax to uh, your qualifying campaign, and now there is no Division Two to this. It's not like Mensker is a Division Two to the Super League. See where he's going, but that's another topic for another time. But um, mm. there is no second division women's cricket. Thailand may not have another fifty over fixture until the next round of qualifying for a World Cup. We could they could be going three or four years without a fifty over match now, and that just seems unfair given how well we've done. Is this
2: sort of once again one of these examples where if this were men's cricket, if they had a qualifier that had to be cancelled, it's very hard to imagine that. No further attempt would be made to put it on at a later time. I mean, the the World Cup isn't until February March next year. That it it, it seems impossible to imagine that if this were men's cricket, they wouldn't find a way around it. But it seems like that because this is women's cricket, it's too expensive and too difficult. Therefore, the the money won't be spent on it, and it and it won't go ahead.
3: Yeah, and it's it's interesting you say that because a women's tournament recently was relocated. Uh, the Americas regional qualify for the next T20 World Cup was originally set to be played in Canada, involving USA, Canada, Brazil, and Argentina. Canada obviously closed down because of Covid, so they moved the whole tournament to Mexico. Now in that case, it involves the USA, who are one of the ICC's favorite you know target markets. they like the USA playing in tournaments. they want the USA to do well. So there, in that case, they found a way to move the tournament. They found something else to do, and there are, you know, there's other examples of that, that where they found a way to move tournaments. And this whole thing, you know, there's lots of tournaments being cancelled. This isn't the only one by any stretch of the match. It's the only one that's been cancelled whilst it's being played, and there's been a lot of inconsistency over, you know, like the African regional qualifying for the men's T20 World Cup once you know some of the countries shut down in that case decided well let's just play the sub-regional events of the regional final all in one go you know over a three-week period all in the same all in the same place they played them all in rwanda whereas in europe they cancelled the sub-regionals and just held the final and decided to qualify as well on rankings so it's this it's this inconsistency which is so maddening if you're going to do something do it consistently then under nine yeah, under 19 qualification was decided not on rankings because there are no under 19 rankings but on 10 years worth of performance but for T 20s and odis they're only using three years of performance it's the lack complete lack of consistency in these decisions and yes they are in a very awkward position i, I don't envy the people having to make this decision at all but it, it's just this lack this constant lack of any sort of consistency you know and they even said in the press release the, the play, according to the playing conditions we've decided the results on rankings if the tournament gets cancelled and they had a link to the playing conditions you go to that link and look at the playing conditions at no point does it mention how they're going to decide <laughs> the standings if the tournament gets cancelled so where, where, you know, nobody seems to know where any of this has come from the ICC never speak up never answer questions on this I've tried answering them uh, I've sent loads of questions <laughs> about this and other th- other things to do with rankings to the ICC over the last 12 months they very rarely actually get back to me. Oh, mm. Maybe that's because it's me. I don't know.
2: <laughs> but yeah, answering these sort of questions isn't um, generally in their best interests. Yeah. Uh, well, we will keep a close eye on what happens, and it it seems like like maybe this doesn't have to be a done deal yet. Maybe there can be some pressure put on to try to come up with a better solution to this, given the the time they've got. Um, Andrew Nixon, thank you for joining The Final Word and explaining all of that to us. Well,
3: thank you. Pleasure. Anytime.
2: Thanks to Andrew Nixon for making himself available and for
1: being such a wonderful advocate for uh, Associate Nations around the world in trying to grow the game. That deep and palpable frustration from him there uh, that these teams have been cut off at the knees effectively, purely down to administrative issues that could have been dealt with in the past and, and now they've caught up with the ICC, really.
2: Yeah, I, I didn't have to ask a lot of questions to Andrew. I just pointed him to the start line and, and let him go and he ran through all of the issues there. I mean, it it always comes back to this weird uh, sort of elitism in cricket of saying that there are certain countries who are better than others who who get recognised with certain kinds of status therefore they get rankings therefore they are deemed worthy and and then on the basis of those those rankings that some get and some don't some have progressed and some haven't so it's it's the the same old problem within the way that the ICC structures the game that is that, you know continues to burn those teams who aren't as high up the preference ladder
1: yeah and i suppose the complexity with cricket has always been that teams have been let in progressively. It wasn't as though... And that's purely by the by virtue of the, of the way the game spread, right? A colonial game through um, what well, wasn't even called the Commonwealth then, but what, what's become the Commonwealth and, and so on. But it feels as though we're reaching a stage of maturation where a lot of those old conventions can be scrapped and we can start again. And status is a big part of that, certainly in, in short-form cricket. I get in... At test level Where there isn't the infrastructure Where there isn't the funding Where they're mindful Of creating profound mismatches But I mean There is a way through here And we're seeing that In the T20 game And unfortunately That hasn't quite been In position quickly enough for these women, Uh, and and I know you spoke about it in the interview, but the Thai women especially, having got themselves into pole position for qualification, having been at the T20 World Cup last year, just about the best story in world cricket at the moment, really, Uh, and and they won't be there, nor will they be uh, in the next round of uh, the Women's Championship for no other reason than the fact that nobody thought this could happen, except for those, like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) frankly, like Andrew, who've been foreshadowing problems like this for a number of years.
2: Yeah, as we talked about, the fact that a tournament being called off in 2021 will affect who can play who in 2025 is ludicrous. The idea that they can't get this qualifier on, like sure, maybe they can't get it on right now, maybe they can't get it on in the next month, but the idea they can't get it on at some point in the next four years is absurd. The possibility of trying to play it before the World Cup in New Zealand seems an obvious one. If they were willing to throw enough money at it, they could fix the problem, but... They don't like spending money on women's cricket, so they won't. Two teams who will be getting it on this time next week by the time it's released is Australia and England.
1: And in Australia's case, it'll be under the uh, leadership of Pat Trick Cummins, as Steve Smith continued to refer to him over and over in that press conference the other day, interesting after that um, that Pat went up to Steve and said what were you doing that for? And Steve's like, I don't really know, I just started doing it at the start and didn't want to stop and Pat didn't want to pull Steve up, but a funny part of an otherwise fairly pedestrian press conference. I quite like the fact that Pat though is saying that He's kind of sticking up for Tim Payne in a way, and also, I suppose, providing a bit of insurance on himself by saying that, you know, what people have done well before—they've been the captain of the Australian cricket team—that people should view that in in some sort of context and perspective. And that's, I suppose, because he knows that he's not a perfect human being either, and he wants to avoid being painted as one uh, because otherwise, he's going to go down the very same slippery slope that, that Payne went down. Not necessarily in the same manner but you know mm-hmm. that all it will take is one fuck up and, and and we'll be back to where we are again
2: yeah well you're on a hiding to nothing if you set yourself up as being perfect but I think that was a big part of the you know the, the criticism of Payne the, the legitimate criticism of Payne in the last week or two uh, is because he kind of did allow that to happen and the media is part of that I know we all smoke up his ass when he was when he came in because he seemed good you know the impression was good what he said was right he sounded credible he was believable, but he went along with that you know he he didn't try to manage those expectations he did allow himself to be presented as the the redeemer and the reformer and the new face so it's probably an early display of intelligence from Cummins to resist that to at least be able to give himself something to fall back on to say well, I didn't say that I was Jesus Christ, um, I'm just going to do my best. And without wanting to wash over the Tim Payne decision from Friday
1: either, Jeff, you wrote about this for The Guardian in a really thoughtful way, I thought, over the weekend. I mean... Well, I'll, I'll let you explain it in your words, but what I took from it is that we are permitted to feel sorry for pain, but we but we shouldn't do it at the exclusion of being mindful of, of the other people who have been involved in this and we shouldn't wash over that. And I know we talked about this last week on the show, but it's a little bit sharper now that not only has he given up the captaincy, his professional career is
2: effectively over. I, I think, and I think the situation evolved even after I wrote that piece, that there's more information now about the woman at the centre of this has brought a claim of sexual harassment against the organisation against Cricket Tasmania to a human rights body. The complaint, I mean there are at least three people involved that we know of now because there was Shannon Tubb who got sacked and there's another unnamed person who was working at Cricket Tasmania who was actually the source of a harassment claim she made at the time. So we're starting to see a much, it it looks like a much bigger institutional problem it looks like Cricket Tasmania had a lot of toxic shit going on there and they didn't do anything about it. And not only that, they then started trying to prosecute someone who was uh, bringing this to their attention. So the order in which those things happened, that's not entirely clear, but they have a problem and they are not being willing to deal with it because they're. it seems like what they care about more is protecting Tim Payne. So that... That's the biggest part of the problem, I suppose. The piece that I wrote was trying to understand why someone in Tim Payne's position would allow this to go unreported, would be willing to take the praise for being the new good face of Australian cricket while knowing that there was something that could come out to blow him up. And, yeah, it's really a meditation on honesty because that's something I've thought about a lot in my life. There are plenty of times when I've fallen down on that front because so I was thinking about the concept of, of honesty and what we're afraid of when we lie about things. And so really that was what the piece was about. And it was, you know, it's it's certainly not an apologia and it's not a, mm. a it's it's trying to understand the human position of someone in the middle of this story.
1: Yeah, and Sam Perry wrote nicely about this for The Guardian too and expanded on these thoughts on the Great Cricketer podcast saying that, he understands the, the framework as to why one would lie or one would try and cover up something like this because presumably a lot of stuff goes down uh, inside inside cricket that would never get reported on or mm. rather that would never really risk getting out. Now, it's hard to put a percentage on how much that would be, but you can see the risk-reward. If Payne simply... Sn- you know, If he gets through one more series, if Payne gets through two more months without this being reported, if this comes out... A month after, he's no longer the Australian captain. Well, of course, Mm. it's a big deal, but it's nowhere near as big a deal. And I suppose that's a a managed risk when uh, players who are involved in the system Mm. and people intimately involved in the system know that plenty of stuff goes down uh, in professional sport that doesn't see the light of day. And and, and in this instance, he felt like he had a bit of inoculation Mm. because there was uh, that initial, anyway, report from Cricket Australia and from Cricket Tasmania that, in effect, exonerated him. He, He felt some ballast from that. And it's only when... Whoever pulled the pin out of the grenade on this, and who knows who and when and why and for what motivation, but as soon as it did, he had himself an escape plan that was probably prearranged alongside Cricket Australia. But Mm. he felt to that point as though he may get through without this coming out, uh, given how close it had been before, uh, which I thought was an interesting part of this. It it sort of suggests that there is plenty of stuff uh, that could and has been covered up, uh, and and that's because mm. most of the time, I mean, I, I've I've joked in the past. I think we did during the uh, the sandpaper debacle, Jeff. That you know cricket australia is the size now of kind of a small government department yet there isn't the scrutiny of a government department is there i mean it, you know there, there isn't mm-hmm. an opposition for example i mean it, it's a it's a group of cricket yep. reporters or or, uh, or the cricket media who most of the time or a lot of the time are focused on whether travis head or usman kawaja are going to bat number five in the first test match they're not primarily looking mm-hmm. at the politics of cricket it's like a different subset of reporting altogether, which doesn't always get done as in detail as it would for an organisation that large.
2: And so what you see from an organisation like that is they only want to ask the questions they absolutely have to ask because they don't want to know any more than they absolutely have to know. And we saw that acted out to the letter in South Africa when they did an investigation into one test match of ball tampering, even though Mm. it is almost certain that there were other test matches where it was happening they didn't look at them they were like oh no we don't see there's any evidence to look into that so we won't they just didn't want to find more trouble it's like that in this case where it's up it keeps being up to journalists to root out the next bit of grime because the governing body is not prepared to do it themselves they're a PR organization and they've got no credibility left when it comes to saying that they've done an investigation or that there's no problem with uh, with something that they've assessed
1: yeah, and it'll be interesting to see those who have joined the board since 2018, remembering that, like, 2018 is the middle of all of this, isn't it? It's sandpaper, mm. botched sandpaper investigation, Tim pain, effectively botched Tim pain process. That's all happened in the space of about yeah. four months but, of but each other. But happening
2: directly afterwards. Yeah. Like, yeah. immediately afterwards. Oh, exactly. And, and after all of the bullshit about we've got to learn from this and we've got to move forward, you'd, you'd, they don't learn from it. That they don't care about learning from it they just learn what they can get away with but they'll just try to get away with it the next time
1: yeah so the onus will be on the next group of directors won't it and look I have I have faith that people don't join the board in order to be involved in a to be involved in cover-ups, right? Like, I mean, the credibility of directors. I mean, remember, a lot of those directors are on a number of boards. You know, they all kind of have their bank and their airline mm. and their mining company. They all, they all ride the carousel. There aren't a lot of directors in Australia who get to do the big jobs. We're a relatively small country. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism of that before, that the limited mm-hmm. gene pool for directors. I suppose you hope that people who don't come from that, that tradition I'm thinking, you know, a director like Mel Jones, who we know well, and you know, uh, all the usual caveats here about her being a friend of ours. But I think I don't think she would enter the board as she did a year and a half ago or thereabouts now, with a view to being part of this. And I, I like to think that what's happened over the last two weeks will be um, the catalyst for some more systemic change at that level. You have to want to believe that, don't you? What choice is there?
2: Of course, and there are, you know, there are usually a couple of very credible people on the board. There are usually. Uh, Say a couple of former players who, who wouldn't have an interest in the same kind of PR management stuff, but they can also very easily be outvoiced, you know, outvoted, outmuscled, and what can they do? You know, if they're a protest voice in the boardroom, well and good, but it it doesn't necessarily allow them to actually have an influence if they're going to be outnumbered on other things.
1: Uh, Stephen Smith, formerly the vice captain, a lot of love for Smith. I thought Jeff mm-hmm. in terms of the coverage and the like, way Cummins spoke about him and. The fact that Cummins kind of went uh, to Cricket Australia saying that he actually wanted Smith to be his vice-captain. It wasn't like a head-to-head thing. He, he went there with a, mm-hmm. a ticket of sorts. And pretty helpful, I would have thought, for Australia to have a guy who's been through an awful lot. I wouldn't say he's towards the end of his career, but he's in the second, well, and truly in the second half of his career. He's been through a lot on and off the field. Uh, to be there as, as Pat's 2IC and also someone who can take over. Which will, as we talked on the show last week Will mean that he is at some stage the Australian captain again And that to me feels about right It feels to me about the right balance That he wasn't in effect banned for life from a captaincy position But he's been brought through in in the 2IC job Which means they can have a bit of generational change through Cummins But not completely throw away the experience that Smith brings And, And when they need a safe pair of hands As and when Cummins needs to rest and rotate himself out of the team Being a fast bowler
2: I probably said this last week, but I'm sure that was a big uh, incentive for CA to get Smith into the VC job because he will get to be a captain here or there, you know, maybe for a test mm. here or a, a short series there without having to full-time formally appoint him. So they sort of get the best of both worlds in terms of giving him a bit of a more of a redemption arc but also not having to actually pick him. But, yeah, I, I still don't think it's the right called to do it just on the basis that you don't fix your culture and image and move on from, you know, one recently disgraced captain by appointing the former recently disgraced captain. So I guess they they just didn't feel like they had a lot of other options, but I thought if they'd been more inventive, maybe Josh Hazel would would have got it because if you've got one fast bowler doing it, why not two? He's been the vice-captain before. He didn't get to stay on in that job, but that might have been an opportunity to sort of keep the generational change moving, but they wanted to have one from the batting side, I guess, and and give Smith that second chance.
1: Yeah, look, I I don't think they've done it in order to give him the, as you described it, the redemption arc. Like The easier thing to do would have been to have gone to Generation Next. The problem they've got is that who is putting their hand up from generation next to be the, the, the two. Well, who's guaranteed a spot? Yeah. I mean, Nobody. the only the only player who's de- who's guaranteed a spot is, is Labashain. And it mm-hmm. seems to me from my vantage point, he's nowhere near it. But honestly, he's nowhere near it. Yeah. To, be, to be like, you know, I get he might one day and I get that people grow up and I get that people mature quickly inside that dressing room and he'll go through that and, and good luck to him. He seems like a lovely young man, but... I mean, seriously, having him responsible for the test team right now, even in a one-off capacity, that feels like a bad combination mm-hmm. to me. And then there's Travis Head, who 12 months ago was being... Well, he was captaining Australia A, Jeff, when you were covering that brief series last year that he played in. And then there was Alex Carey yep. who was captaining the other one of those Australia A teams. And for different reasons, neither of those and players And who captained
2: the one-day team.
1: He did, he did. I mean, Alex Carey
2: right. captained the one-day team this year yeah. to a really good series win in the West Indies. That's right.
1: I suppose the thinking there is that in the case of Kerry, and we'll come to him in a moment, but not quite bolted on for a spot. uh, And they want to give themselves some flexibility there. And, of course, with Head, um, that's a 50-50 whether he plays in the first Test match to begin with. I mean, he wasn't in the squad for the ill-fated South African tour. So they, they find themselves in a situation where Smith is the best option because he is overwhelmingly than the other player who's likely to be in the 11 in the event that mm. the Cummins gets injured or, or something like that moving on to selection Jeff it feels as though we've got three selection debates swirling around now I mean there was going to be one wasn't there between Mm -hmm. um, between Head and Khawaja which was foreshadowed a couple of weeks ago but that's broadened out now to Kerry and Inglis and also uh, on the back of what George Bailey said a couple of weeks ago and and Jai Richardson's performances in the Sheffield Shield whether they start with Richardson um, ahead of Stark uh, at the Gabba uh, with a view to managing the quicks as they did in this corresponding series in, in 2019. Let, let's start with uh, the wicket keepers, Kerry and Inglis. Um, Kerry made a timely century in the Mercantile Mutual game on Sunday at Adelaide Able. Really good game, actually. SA made 274 after being like 200 for one or something like that. But um, but And he was there with Henry Hunt, who looks a good prospect, actually. He made 61. But then after Kerry fell, Grinder Sandu, who's playing for his third state, took a hat-trick and, and pretty much bowled them out early uh, in 47.1 overs. And then in reply, Queensland hauled it down in like 42 overs where Matthew Renshaw went bananas. He had like, he made his century or he brought up his century in about 92 balls and he went on to finish with 156 not out from 109 balls hitting five sixes after raising his century. So he finished it (laughs) <laughs> in a real hurry there i think he got them the bonus point queensland there so Renshaw, short just reminding people that he's a pretty good cricketer you don't forget how you, you don't forget yep. to be a good cricketer just because you have a rough couple of years he'll he'll be back i'm sure but just on the Kawaja head components of that head missed out Uh, Well, he made 20-odd in in the one day. uh, But he made 101 when SA were following on in the Shield game. And then Kawaja with Queensland chasing 88, made 52 not out in 36 balls. So they both had a blistering finish to that game. I wouldn't have a clue who they're going to pick. I just have... I mean, you can build a case for both, can't you?
2: I wouldn't have a clue either. And I think it wouldn't take a radically different world for Kawaja to... Be in that captaincy conversation mm. And I think it's interesting that he's never He's never been credibly raised As an Australian captain You know, and you do wonder what the Influences are on that, but I suppose Also he's He's never completely commanded A spot, he's had Three great innings in his career But he's he's played what Five Ashes Series before this one, I think
1: Yeah, 2010, and 2013 uh, 17, 15, 18, 19. 17, 19. I don't think he played in 15, but yeah, it'll still be his fifth Ashes series across 11 years. Yeah.
2: He's played, yeah. I mean, he hasn't played all of the tests in all of those series, but he's featured in all of those series. He's made one Ashes 100, which was the junk 100 and the fifth test in Sydney in 2018. Mm-hmm. He made a 100 that day, didn't he? 170. Sure, he yep. did. You know, when it was 50 degrees in England, we cooked and just wanted yep. to go home. So. He's never produced, like in in some ways his best Ashes performance is still that one on debut when he made 37 and got eight pages in the Sydney Morning Herald about it because, you know, he looked looked classy that day replacing Ponting. But he's never stamped his authority on an Ashes series. And I do wonder how many shots does someone get, you know, how many chances does, does someone get because they made a few runs in the Sheffield Shield before the first test. I mean, if you've had you go, you've had you go and I don't, I, I just think they're going backwards to look at him again.
1: Yeah, he'll turn 35 on the 18th of December. I wonder whether that'll be a factor. Like, if you're looking at one or the other, Head's 26, mm. 27 maybe, something like that. Mm-hmm. So there is a, a generation gap between the pair of them.
2: But then again, Head was dropped. And how, how many shots does one player get versus other players who never get a go? Yeah,
1: you know? well, that's right. That's right. And in Head's case, he was dropped in England in 2019, albeit a bit of a team balancing with Mitch Marsh coming in as a, an all-rounder. But then he was dropped uh, 18 months on from that uh, last year against India. He wasn't in the squad for South Africa. So far from like what I would call a rusted-on player in that Australian team right now. And missed misses opportunity to be talked up as captain. If Kawaja grasped that chance when Warner and Smith were banned, and Bancroft, because remember that Kawaja mm. was effectively in Bancroft's spot when he opened the batting in the immediate aftermath of Sandpaper. Had he, I mean, of course, there's the the masterful century in Dubai, but that's really it in that following summer. Mm-hmm. He makes one century. I mean, you talk about junk time centuries when they were up by 300 runs on the first innings against Sri Lanka at Canberra, and they decided to bat again just because they couldn't be asked enforcing the follow Yeah, for on. two sessions. Um, that, that was the epitome of a Junk Time 100, even more so than the Sydney century in, in 2018, where that was in, at least initially, tough conditions with Warner and Bancroft out early. But yeah, the I mean I, the way I would look at it is that, are they thinking about this particular series? Then if they are only looking at this series in isolation, then maybe it's Khawaja. If they're thinking about giving Cummins a, a group of players that will play with him for a period of time, then, it, then it's probably head. As for the wicketkeeper, I note mm. that I mean, Josh Inglis uh, presents a pretty interesting storyline, really. I don't think anybody, apart from those who have covered him in England and in WA, realised that he spoke with an English accent until about four days ago. Um, But he did grow up there. He moved (laughs) over to Australia when he was 15. And he, he did. His do- last name is literally English. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did do well. He did well last year in the Blast for Leicestershire, and he made a really impressive century in the championship as well. He made three tons uh, for WA in the last Shield campaign when he kind of had his big breakout year. He made a significant contribution in the 100 under Shane Warne, who was coached there. So, Warne, he's talking up. Inglis, in turn, there are other senior players being sampled, like Ricky Ponting, who was backing him in as well. So there is an outside chance that Kerry still does get overtaken by a guy who appears to be the shinier, newer model, even though he's only four years his junior, and he was in the World Cup squad and Kerry wasn't, so he was in and around the boys in the UAE um, through that bit of success they had, well, considerable success they had last month. Um, he nearly played in that final, Got actually. Got a medal. According to reports with Matthew Wade carrying a niggle into the final, there was a decent chance Inglis was going to make his debut in the final, but not to be. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose, Jeff, it's going to be Kerry, but, but Inglis is so close. Or, or maybe they go Inglis for the gloves and and they see Kerry as, as a mm. player who ultimately can graduate into the top six with bat alone. I've I've always thought that could be where Kerry
2: lands. This is an interesting one because... And I don't think players should be anointed as the next in line, but there has been an expectation for probably three years that Kerry will be. Mm. There's been... It's always been the talk about him, and it hasn't all been conjecture from outside. There's obviously been enough of a consensus inside that that is what's going to happen. And so I don't think you can do that and then let someone get shafted when all things are relatively equal. I mean, there are probably five wicket keeper bats in domestic cricket in Australia who all have basically the same record. They're all decent with the gloves, they all average low thirties with the bat. No one stands out on records alone. You know, Carey doesn't stand out really, but Inglis doesn't stand out over Carey. They are they're roughly the same player statistically, so then it's about what else do they bring? And they've always liked the leadership aspect with Kerry. They've liked the calmness, the coolness on the field. And when he was asked to fill in as captain in the one-day team after Finch got injured earlier this year, he did it really well. So I think for all of those reasons, he should get the nod but it is interesting that there's such a late campaign Inglis is like he's like the write-in nominee on on a Senate ballot in in the US (laughs) or something you know we're like Hulk Hogan gets elected governor because enough people wrote him on the ballot you know Ponting's backing him and Warren's backing him and uh, so the The big dogs are barking in his favour But I don't know what it is That suddenly got them all so musky And aroused about Inglis Like yeah he's done some great stuff in white ball cricket But why does that mean he should be in the test team
1: I think it's because of what he did for WA last year Really he just stood out but then again, uh, so is Pearson for Queensland, right? I mean, I suppose the different tricks yeah. that Inglis has and And uh,
2: Pearson's got a trajectory. Pearson's got a massive upward trajectory in the last 3 years with the bat. Like he's getting better and better. But I think so. that's what
1: Inglis has going for him too, right? So Inglis was a middling player who yeah. who'd never who really had never performed at domestic level. Was in the in the wilderness a little bit. And then he's had a fabulous year in Australia and transferred that to England as well. What Kerry has going for him is that I mean, different format of the game, but he's been a match winner against England in, in, in one day cricket before, including that uh, that wonderful mm-hmm. century uh, to win the series at Old Trafford uh, in late 2020. So, yeah, again, it feels like we're, we're talking toss of the coin stuff. But I'd be surprised if they overlook Carey on the basis that, as you say, they're probably looking for a group of players to go with Cummins over yeah. a longer stretch of time with leadership credentials and and Kerry certainly uh, has those coming into this and he's done his apprenticeship is the other point here he's been in and around the white ball team for four or five years he he shouldn't be daunted by this step up whereas Inglis I mean he's kind of going from state cricket to the test team uh, for mm-hmm. the first test of an Ashes series where and um, you know, whether it should or shouldn't be that's different gravy above the shoulders for you know when it comes to the way a, a player can sink or swim coming in for the first test of an Ashes series as your entry to the international stage isn't as straightforward as someone like Kerry who's had plenty of experience playing in the pyjamas.
2: Well, there's also, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting over the last week about how Pat Cummins has dreamy eyes um, and Alex Carey also has dreamy eyes. So is it to Australia's (laughs) advantage to have a double dreamy eyes sort of bowler (laughs) and keeper combo or or are those too many dreamy eyes? Will that detract from their performance? I don't know what the overall impact is on a team.
1: Yeah, yeah. We've got to to consider the dreamy eye index. We always had the Mitch and the Marsh index that Dan Liebke ran for all those years. Not Mm -hmm. not quite as pronounced as it once was, but um, we'll keep an eye on that uh, into the future. Uh, And last but not least, uh, I suppose, it's whether Jai Richardson plays at the Gabba. Remembering that Jai Richardson was Mm. outstanding against Sri Lanka at the Gabba on Testaboo, albeit with the pink ball a couple of years ago. That was the test where Pat Cummins and and Jai Richardson bowled out Sri Lanka twice in the space of a couple of days. I mean, it's a long time ago, different opposition. He's gone through a lot since then, picked up some fairly serious injuries as well with that shoulder reconstruction. But, I mean, you know, jumping Jai, time to fly. uh, 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 It feels like it's on.
2: It's exciting, um, but Australia's a very hierarchical place and last time Mitchell Stark played a test match, he looked very flat. You know, he, he, he just sort of hasn't had that zip in test cricket for a while, but he's had a, that was a year ago. You know, how do you decide whether he's going to be up for the contest or not? I think that given they could play the same three quicks who went through England 4-0 uh, last time they came, I think they will go with the conventional trio.
1: Yeah, they, they took eighty-two wickets between them, those four bowlers uh, in seventeen eighteen, which was the eighty-two that Australia took. No other bowler claimed a wicket. I mean, it was kind of the perfect play Actually, so it might have been eighty-eight wickets. With yeah, it was with all of them taking wickets With Lyon, yeah, with with Lyon. So I mean, it, it was like the perfect setup. You know, Jackson Bird played one Test. Stark played four, but. Yeah, it's unlikely that – I put this in my wisdom column this month – it's unlikely that the sort of souffle rises twice on this. You can't nail something so well four years apart. So that's why they're talking about squad mentality. And Mitchell Stark being the greatest pink ball bowler that's ever been, albeit – in a sample size that only goes back six years or so, you can see how they would definitely want him ready for Adelaide and maybe the way they do that and have him completely fresh is for him actually to miss Brisbane, which isn't too dissimilar to what they did in in 2019 where Josh Hazelwood didn't play at Edgbaston but came in for Lords and... Uh, We all know how well Hazelwood bowled through that series. So a bit of a a watch this space there. Uh, That's enough selection speculation for us for one week because I'm sure uh, we'll have a much better idea in a few days where that's going to land. Jeff, before we take a breather though, uh, let's move on to a little bit of...
2: Mm -hmm. Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. It's a game, a fun game that we play with listeners of the show, to the show and off the show. Uh, So here's how it works. We make this show twice a week. People help us fund it. Bless them. They send us contributions. And those contributions, instead of being a round number like the value of a, a coin or a note, they're a specific number. They're a Dimmies and Forges stock take sale sort of number uh, because, you know, I need ninety nine. 9.99. Sort, sort of sale. And they are that number because the number relates to cricket in some way. But we don't know why. We have to work out what it is. That's the game. For instance, Justin Douglas is our nerd pledger for the show this week. A long-time Julio, and that's, that's when you send in a round number, who then changed it to a nerd pledge number. That number is $18.44. Very generous. Thank you, Justin, for throwing that in the hat. And 18441844... 1844 now, the decimal point could be anywhere. There could be no decimal point. It could be two separate things. It could be 18 wickets for 44 runs. It could anything that involves a sequence of one 8 in cricket. If we can work out something that does, that's going to be our answer for Justin. And Adam has the reins this week. And
1: I have an answer. And look, the one one 4 I've gone for might not be uh, what... Uh, Justin was steering us towards However This is a bowler I was thinking about Just a couple of weeks ago You know how sometimes Jeff you think of I wonder whatever Happened to them And you jump on Their quick info page mm-hmm. Or Wikipedia This was the case For this particular Fast bowler And the number lined up so I thought why not tell his story Uh, why not go a bit deeper and and tell the story of Brett Schultz who we've never talked about before but as I say I've thought about a bit of late actually it was after watching the the Hansi Cronje documentary on Netflix and thinking about that South African era Brett Schultz looked like an absolute world beater when he burst onto the stage in the early 90s. He kind of was born at the perfect time. He was born in 1970, so by the time he was emerging as a professional cricketer, well, it was beyond the apartheid era, which meant that he could play. And so he did, opening the bowling alongside Alan Donald. Blonde hair like Alan Donald as well, probably bowled at a similar pace, but flung it down as a left armour, all shoulder. Mm. Really flung it down, and he was genuinely quick. He was known as the beast or the bear. And he got his start in 1992 initially
2: against... The nickname game was pretty good. Like, you're going out to bat up against the White Lightning and the Beast. Yes, that's right. They had it all going on,
1: uh, that pair, albeit briefly, as I'll go into explain. So, gets his start in 92. By 93, he dominates overseas against sri lanka he has a series a test series where he takes two fifers and two fourfers and suddenly you know they've got one here this is just before the pollock era right so you know left arm right arm two blokes that are probably bowling 90 mile an hour two blonde bombshells and and so it goes and with donald obviously the senior of the two having played a fair bit in england through the mid to late 80s but schultz right there with him but that was it for two years for him Uh, one of the first of a number of injuries that that set him back he Ended up only playing nine test matches and had about nine comebacks as I recall it. One of those comebacks I remember really well, and this is partly what inspired me to look him up. So in 1997, Australia win um, the first two test matches, famously one of those at Port Elizabeth, and then they go to Centurion to nil up. So they won at Cape Town, they won at Port Elizabeth, and then they go to, to Centurion. And it was Schultz who mm. romped through Australia in the first innings uh, when they were bowled out for 227. He bowled Hayden early. He nicked off Steve War and he blew off Bevan's front pad and he blew off Warren's front pad as well and finished with four for sod all. Alan Donald took five in the in the second innings, but Schultz um, still had time to to go through Hayden leg before wicket for a duck the second time around and took six wickets for the match. Australia were all out for one hundred and eighty five and they ended up getting the job done fairly convincingly to to lose that series but win the third rubber two one. And again, you're thinking, well, Schultz is back alongside Donald and. Pollock, I mean, that's Mm. an incredibly strong pace trio. However, that's his final test match, I'm afraid to say. Uh, That's it. He's injured again. He finishes with 37 wickets at 20 at test level. Just won one day international. But you look at his domestic career and you get a sense of what might have been both at first-class level... And at List A level, and what I picked up on for the number, at List day level, one hundred and thirty-six wickets at eighteen point four four, which is Justin's number, eighteen point four four, at three point seven runs per over, and a strike rate of twenty-nine. So unfortunately, uh, twenty-nine. That's, yeah, yeah. I mean, this this guy had this guy had serious game, but Jesus. his knees were cooked, his back was cooked. I mean, I guess it was partly that catapult action.
2: A wicket every four point five overs.
1: Yeah, yeah, which I mean, which I mean, effectively means in a one day international, his his standard figures were a one day domestic game rather were two for thirty seven from ten which again gives you a good handle on, on the sort of on the sort of cricketer this guy would have been had his body stayed right. But that wasn't to be for the bear or the beast. Uh, and what I did learn, though, is that when he finished up his cricketing career, he went into finance and in more recent years he's been doing a lot of work for, for fundraising and raising a lot of money for various charitable causes. So clearly a good guy who's been giving back to the game, uh, a game that didn't give him an awful lot, but when it did he was brilliant. Uh, a list day average of 18.44, but a test average of just 20.
2: Brett the Bear Schultz. The bear. What, an, what a remarkable story. Could we get him together with Cameron White for a bear-off, you know, for some sort of, sort of bear-related, you know, maybe they could do it as a fundraiser. Um, if you want to play Nerd Pledge, it's really easy. Uh, you go to patreon.com slash the final word. In doing so, you get your number on the show, which is fun. You get to help us keep making the show, which is nice. You get things like the discount tickets to the live shows and so on. And you are a very good chance to win uh, the right to give away a slab of Brick Lane beer. If you don't like beer or you don't like drinking, you can give it away to someone else. If you have someone you want to give it to, you can give it to someone else. You have to give it to someone who's in Australia. That's, that's the only place they can collect it from. But you can give it to yourself if you want. So, Justin Douglas, you... Uh, the Brick Lane uh, recipient this week, you get to be Slab Santa for whoever you like um, when the slab comes in at some point over the next few weeks.
1: And a reminder that any of our patrons that want to come along to the live show, you get, yeah, basically a third discount. All that information is in the show notes. And if there's any confusion about how you get yourself a hold of that code, just let us know uh, in all of the usual places. Uh, Jeff, that's a very long first segment. We've been going for about an hour. So probably time for us to, uh, to draw a line under part one take a break and when we return uh, we'll be uh, here to talk about the Big Bash League, the women's variety of the Big Bash League which concluded on the weekend and a couple of cracking test matches in the subcontinent
3: Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
1: Final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. The Women's Big bash League uh, came to its conclusion on Saturday at the Casino Stadium in Perth, Adelaide, who had to do it the hard way. They won their elimination final uh, over Brisbane and the prelim over the Gades, and they earned the right to play... Perth who finished top and thus went straight through to the decider. A great crowd of 15,000 people there to watch. Primetime Saturday, Jeff, as well on the main channel, on Channel 7. I know we say it all the time, but to think where this competition was when you and I were covering it, you know, day in, day out uh, back in 2015 to where it is now, it's quite astonishing. But yes, a a very entertaining match between uh, first and fourth on the ladder in the regular season. And at long last, the Scorchers have got it done.
2: Yeah, they've been so close (laughs) for so long. They've They've been in finals almost every year. They've made the final uh, before, but they've uh, they've never sealed it. Uh, and look, I suppose it was their it, it wasn't their all star opening duo going nuts, but they did enough. They batted through until the eighth over. Sophie Devine and Beth Mooney, and it's it's a pretty remarkable run of success for Mooney, who wins two mm. finals with Brisbane Heat in which she's the player of both times and then makes a move over to Perth and wins a final for them as well. Yeah, they they had they had just enough and Marizan Cap another one who'd moved from the Sixers this time over to Perth who was important with the bat as well where, you know and, and it really is the big bash that's ...developed her batting, you know, she she came in as a specialist bowler... ...but is almost always in the top six for any team that she plays for these days... ...and she made 30 not out at the end at better than a runner ball... ...which helped push them up to that, that one four six... Um, ...which ended up being enough. Yeah, and I thought Adelaide
1: bowled pretty well. I watched I watched the game and, you know, uh, Megan Shoot, Darcy Brown, Amanda Wellington... Uh, Talia McGrath, the captain Pretty much only Sarah Court Who had 40 taken from her four overs Other than that they, they did a half decent job So I thought they'd They'd take that through To the batting innings But it was really The Marazan cap intervention At the end Which got the wind in the sails For the Scorchers And they started really well With the ball um, They just gave nothing away In the first four overs And then they lose Katie Mack Who had a great run uh, Leading into the final uh, To Sophie Devine he Bowled a wicket maiden In the fifth over yeah. And at that stage It's 12 for one And, and you know in all probability, if you're twelve for one in the fifth over of a T20 chasing one four six, you need kind of everything to go
2: right. How often do you see that as well? Where there's if there's a player who's had a really good season and they fail in the final, it just tanks their team. You know, Brendan McCullum at the World Cup in 2015, mm. Sophie Devine when she was playing for the Strikers against the Brisbane Heat in that final mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago. It's, it's it, it's like if you come to rely on someone, you can't afford to rely on a player in T Twenty cricket because there's always the chance they won't make runs in that in that game.
1: Yeah, that's right, and I mean, I, I guess the the, the the support did come. Wolvart uh, twenty five quickly when they needed it and that rebuilding job with, with Talia McGrath, who made 36 from 29. So they're kind of vaguely within striking distance, but then Heather Graham gets out the team wolf, and uh, uh to Neil Purcell, who takes two for 23, gets McGrath, and then Cap gets Bridget Patterson and you know like the squeeze is on right so they did uh, they did get it to a point where I think they needed 12 and over from the final five so if you kind of squint at it and you know look out the side of your eye you can kind of see how that might be possible but Heather Graham uh, held her nerve at the mm-hmm. end so she had 20 runs to defend in the final over only had 8 taken from that she picked up a couple of wickets so as you say Mooney gets her third flag in a row great story for Sophie Devine as well who moved over from um, the strikers so uh, winning the flag against her old team there but her first pennant and, and players like Heather Graham and Jeff, who've made their way to, I guess, the cusp of international selection. Heather Gray might have even played a couple of times uh, for the Southern Stars now, but always been in and around Australia A and the, the seconds here, and has got her opportunities through the Big Bash as a very dependable all
2: rounder for the Scorchers, and now she's a Premiership player. A Premiership player. Well, yes, they can't they can't take that away from you. Um, good good recruiting by Perth. It was interesting that that, uh, that Marisane kept. Cap- and Dane Van Niekirk felt the need to move on from the Sixers or whether the Sixers felt that they needed to change things. But also interesting that that pair went to different teams for the first time. They've, they've always played together in the Big Bash, being a married couple. And, Did you see the um... <laughs> and the Sixers absolutely tanked?
1: <laughs> Did you see the at one stage bowled uh, Bolden absolute unplayable to Danae, which missed you know the outside edge by half a centimetre and the off stump by a quarter of a centimetre, and you know I think someone pointed that on social media. Can you imagine the extent to which Marizam will dine off that <laughs> delivery if only it had a kiss to stump? But yeah, usually they've been conditioned to winning trophies together, but on this occasion it was Kat who was victorious and Van Niekerk on on the wrong side of that. But yeah, Adelaide. I mean, you know, they did a lot right this season. Uh, again, they finished fourth and had to win two finals, did that. They had a problem for a while there, Jeff, when they couldn't quite make it into the top four. But under Charlotte Edwards now, they're, they're, they're on the trajectory to, to win one of these at some stage. And they've recruited well too. So I think that it was a, a fitting result that two teams who had underperformed at different stages got the chance to play in the decider. And as I mentioned before, great crowd, massive television numbers and the Women's Big Bash League goes from strength to strength.
2: Yeah, the standalone window is working and you know, hopefully it can shift towards more primetime games, more TV games and, and keep, keep having that build. It's quite a smart window really because there's not a huge amount of competition. That kind of October, early November window when it's only the racing that's on, the footy codes have all finished. The men's cricket hasn't really got going yet so they've been... Clever in identifying that, and they're making it their own.
1: In terms of uh, runs and wickets, just to uh, run through the particulars, uh, Beth Mooney led the competition again with 547 at an average of 50. Brilliant. Katie Mack made 513 runs at 64. Sophie Devine, Elise Fellani, Georgia Redmain, rounding out the top five. And with the ball, Amanda Jade Wellington, we talked about her last week. Jeff. she's on the way back, 23 wickets at 16. Jess Johnson, 21 at 15 then Darcy Brown, Heather Graham and Alana King, so they're the top fives respectively with bat and ball with another women's big bash league coming to an end, and Jeff, a test match came to an end last night as well, an absolute belter, a Nagpur, a classic a classic finish with um, the light meter out uh, with umpire men and every over as New Zealand held on somehow, batting all the way through yeah. the fifth day and just reminding everyone, not that people should need any reminder now, but they are made of blood blast- bloody tough stuff. I mean, losing a wicket before the close on day four, that was Will Young. And it's set up beautifully for Ashwin and Judasia and Akshar Patel and New Zealand had other
2: thoughts. Yeah, well, we've seen the way that teams like Australia and South Africa have gone to India and just been absolutely crunched and England as well um, in the last 10 years or so. And New Zealand... Somehow they they find a way to fight out of situations that other teams don't. The classic nine down draw. It I, I'm drawn first to consider. Remember some of the absolute garbage that was going around during the India England series about how uh, Nitin Menon, a an India as an Indian umpire, was being biased to the home team. Like complete nonsense. He barely got a decision wrong through the entire series, and. If you needed any further evidence, here it is, taking the team off the field with 12 minutes to to play and and one wicket to get for India to try to win. Um, there is, you know, he, he was going by the letter of the law on, on the light metres. But, yeah, it was, it was an opportunity to watch sort of India tier two with the big names resting after the T20 World Cup. So Rahane leading the team again as he did so successfully in Australia. Maya Gargawal and Shubman Gill opening Pajara at three. Shreyas Iyer finally getting a shot in test cricket. Jadeja getting to bat at six, which we've been clamouring for for a while in test cricket, and he made a 50 batting there in the first innings. Akshar Patel, the left-arm spinner, getting another go, um, and he took another five for this extraordinary record from Akshar Patel after playing England earlier this year. Eight innings in his test career, five times he's taken five wickets or more Um, and one of the other times he took four for so he's only got two innings where he's taken less than four he's never had a wicketless innings and he's he's been extraordinary so he he was he was the key intervener because you know India make 345 when Shreyas I makes a ton and New Zealand are going great guns to exceed it they've got Latham who gets to 95. Will Young gets to 89. And then when they're out, it's Akshar Patel who just squeezes through and ends up bowling out New Zealand for a deficit. Bowled them out for 296. Yeah, Shreyas Iyer becomes the first
1: Indian man to make a century and a half century on Testabu. I mean, he's been ready for ages, hasn't he? We, we, we've looked and ogled at his mm-hmm. uh, first-class numbers for a couple of years, but hasn't played a lot of first-class cricket, partly a function of the pandemic. But I mean, obviously had his chances to play for India as a one-day international player, but it was a matter of time before he was given a berth And Took full advantage, and when he got out in the second dig, caught down the leg side, just when New Zealand needed to put the squeeze on on day four, and they did it successfully enough. They got India to the point where they did declare in set two eighty four, which was you know a, a reasonably um, a reasonably generous declaration in some respects, but they knew they were going to need every one of those overs on a on a fairly dead, yeah. on a fairly sort of dead track. Well, but yeah, Shrey Iyer at one point it looked was like it, it he was, was a destined
2: bold declaration. Like it was a bold declaration. It was good to see Rahane do that. So many captains want to get to three eighty in front before they're willing to declare and he backed his bowlers and he was you know, they very nearly got it done.
1: Well you're certainly right in terms of not expecting New Zealand to get the runs. Even when they batted all the way through the first session yesterday with Will Somerville, the the night watchman from the previous day I mean they were never really in the hunt To, to haul the runs down So it was it was a well balanced declaration I suppose even if they did fall one wicket short And that happens when you get some Stiff resistance um, from a number 10 And number 11 as they did uh, Ratchan Ravindra won't be the last we hear of him Batting for 90 minutes at number 8 To save a test uh, alongside uh, Ajay Patel, Jeff, who we enjoyed the work of at Edgbaston earlier this year, who batted for half mm-hmm. an hour at number 11, getting them to the finish line when the light metres came out. But yeah, Australia's so, like, Cole Jamison, just brilliant. Tim Southey, likewise. It wasn't really about New Zealand spinners, it was about New Zealand seamers. I mean, Cole Jamison's record's just I mean, I haven't got it in front of me. I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but he's got something like Mm. 50 test wickets at 14 or something. I mean, what a start, considering he'd only until this point played test cricket in New Zealand and England. Well, you can add India to the mix now and bowling at genuine pace, that height. Jared Kimber writes persuasively about why Jamison is the perfect combination in modern cricket based on the data. If you can be tall and fast, I mean, it's skewed dramatically your way, and the fact that he can move it away from right-handers is just an absolute bonus. And Tim Southey, whose record... Across the last couple of years is right there alongside James Anderson. Better and better. Yeah, so, um, you know, this, this New Zealand team, they, they, they were able to do it without Wagner and, you know, I suppose without Williamson dominating either, and they still get to that split result, which was so. And I love the idea of everybody tuning in for the last half an hour. It's that thing with social media, isn't it? You get a sniff that a test match mm. is going down to the wire, and all of these people pile in, and it's a great communal experience that we were able to uh, share in last night as it, as it came towards the end with the light meter out and all that drama.
2: Well, Williamson, you know, he didn't make big runs, but he did bat for two and a half hours on True. the last day when they desperately needed it. So his, his intervention was important, I thought. And also in terms of it being a match for the second tier, well, Ritterman has the second tier wicketkeeper because Rishabh Punt keeps making crazy runs. But he wasn't able to keep wicket in the second innings of the match with um, with a sore neck. And mm. so KS Bharat got a chance to come out. Now, he's never played a test match, but he came out, took two absolute screamers mm. um, off. Spin where where the ball was really misbehaving, keeping low, hard to predict. He took two incredible catches and at stumping, none of which will be credited to his record because he's never played a test match and he was on <laughs> it as a substitute.
1: Unfortunately, they're only playing two tests, Jeff. The next starting in a couple of days, and I think India have called for the reinforcements. Cole is back as captain. I think Rohit Sharma is back in the squad as well, so they'll be able to bolster themselves up somewhat. But uh, that doesn't mean they'll roll over New Zealand anything but. That is a very evenly matched series. And just a shame that it's been played over two Test matches. As we've said repeatedly, the, the best and easiest tweak to the World Test Championship is, is making at a minimum of three tests per series. However, um, that won't be the case in this new cycle. That cycle uh, continues with uh, the West Indies and Sri Lanka. It rained on the first day. They only got 34 overs in at Gaul. At the moment, Sri Lanka have started well, though. They're 113 for one, with the Dasanka unbeaten on 61. And, Jeff, the other test match that will probably finish today, Chad Graham, Lisa Needs Braces, uh, is... uh, Lisa Needs Braces. uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh. This looks like it was going to be a thriller as well, but Pakistan have pulled away.
2: Yeah, Bangladesh collapsed in the third innings, which was a shame um, because they... They batted really well. First dig, litton Dust made 114. Mushy made 93. Hassan Ali took five for 51, which was good to see after you – it know, really felt for him after that World T20 yeah. – I would say T20 World Cup match where he dropped the catch and, and all of the rest. Um, and so Bangladesh then bowled out Pakistan for a 44-run lead. Tajul Islam. Yes. Spinner, taking 7, One of my faves. Yeah. <laughs> Not even his best innings figures. He's got an eight for as well. Uh, but he you know, he, he wheeled away, bowled almost half the overs, worked through Pakistan for a 44-run lead, and then Bangladesh collapsed for 157 in the third innings thanks to Shaheen shah who just ripped through the top order, 5 for 32. So Pakistan are running it down quite comfortably. They're 109 without loss in the fourth innings, ready to resume. Um, Abid Ali with a 50, and um, they look like they should charge it down.
1: As Matthew Beggs, our mate from the Patreon page, pointed out last night, we're in a golden era of Test cricket make no mistake we are seeing more mm. test matches resolved on the final day deep into the final day than certainly any time in my life so let's savour that and let's hope that the uh, the Ashes series in Australia follows suit starting a week from now Jeff let, let's put an end to our show for this week we'll be back with story time on the weekend if you want to be part of our live shows we would love to meet you in real life in the past yeah there's the uh, formalities there's the show there's the interview there's the, the bits and bobs we're quite proud of but then it's the Two or three hours afterwards where we can have a few beers and go out and enjoy ourselves. Uh, In in both instances, they're they're, they're taking place uh, in between tests so we're not having to rush off somewhere the next day. Well, I suppose in in the case of Melbourne, we're rushing off to Adelaide the next day to do our show but um, we're not like on commentary or something so we can enjoy ourselves a little bit.
2: I've booked a sort of splitting the difference flight that means I won't be, I'm not cutting it too fine to get to Adelaide for the show but (laughs) I'm not going to punish myself too much if Melbourne ends up being an enjoyable night out.
1: Exactly, exactly that. So, yeah, jump on. Tell your mates. Even if you've got mates who who don't necessarily know the final word but do enjoy cricket. I mentioned, uh, I think, on Storytime last week or the week
2: before that... Even if they don't enjoy cricket. Even if they don't enjoy cricket. I feel that we can be entertaining enough to cross (laughs) the non-cricket barrier.
1: I like to believe that too. But that group of guys that came to the London show on spec didn't know anything about us and... Uh, had a wild old night and um, met a bunch of interesting people and have remained supporters of the show. So bring people along who love cricket and love supporting independent journalism, which is what we try and do uh, on the show, on The Final Word. Thank you to the team at Bad Producer Productions who get us on the park at least twice a week. We're going to be making the ashes daily. Uh, it's going to be a very, very busy time for us over the summer. If you want to be involved with what we do, patreon.com forward slash The Final Word. Join the conversation on the Discord which continues to pop off. People bloody love it on there and I love dropping in too when I get the opportunity and Jeff, you spend a bit more time on there than I do at the moment but it's a wonderful community of, I suppose, like-minded people who just uh, have just spent, uh, well, they've enjoyed watching the World Cup with us on there and I'm sure it'll be uh, the case through the ashes as well. Thanks to Brick Lane Brewing. Brick Lane are going to be very much part of our live shows in Melbourne and Adelaide and we'll have more to say about Brick Lane and the Sydney show on the 4th of... January next week or maybe even on story time maybe even on story time Mm -hmm. time will tell that'll be the next time you hear from us story time will be on the weekend thanks for listening this has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon let's do it all again soon bye for now
2: Arrivederci
0: (laughs) I had to go Thanks for listening to the Final Word Cricket Podcast. All of Adam and Jeff's previous episodes are available at FinalWordCricket.com, including Storytime 20. That's 40 story times ago. 40. Almost a year's worth of nerd pledge. Why Storytime 20? Because it features comedian Will Anderson. It's a great chat. I think you're going to love it. FinalWordCricket.com for all things Final Word. And thanks, once again, to our friends at Brick Lane Brewing. Shop online at BrickLaneBrewing.com. Thanks for listening. More from Adam and Jeff real soon.